art, comedy, pop culture, and much more. You're listening to ACPN. Russ. Do you have that one with that guy who was in that movie that was out last year? <sighs> Hello and welcome to the Emerald City Video Podcast. I'm your host, Russ Burlingame, and this is an episode of our Spinner Rack, where we talk about comic books and related pop culture media. Today I'm going to be talking to Ted Sakura. He's the writer of, well, a number of comics, but the most recent one, and the one we're going to be talking about, is The Tap Dance Killer. And in this book... Uh, well, well, we'll talk about the premise, but right now he's crowdfunding the trade paperback collection of the first story arc. It's been a big success for him. It's a lot of fun. And uh, it's it's a bit of an easier sell than his last book, which was this thing called Apama, which was about a fake superhero that then became real and did the whole thing. Go see the movie Hero Tomorrow, which he directed before he started doing these comics. But uh, yeah, Ted's going to join me for about a half an hour of talk about his uh, crowdfunding campaign. You can get the link in the... Uh, in the description of this episode, or you can just go to Kickstarter and search Sikora, S-I-K-O-R-A. And I hope you enjoy the conversation. We'll be back very soon with more Emerald City Video. Why don't we start with the really elementary stuff, because obviously, like, we're talking about the trade of the first handful of issues, and this book has been a success for you, but as we all know, in, in the world of indie comics, a success still means that, like, fewer people saw it than saw the ad on the subway. Um... And so, uh, and I mean no disrespect by that, it's just that, like, talking to indie people all the time, it's like, yeah, I I know how this works. Um, But, so, uh, Tap Dance Killer, like we were saying, kind of off mic, is a lot easier to explain than your previous project, which was a pun. Uh, uh, But uh, what kind of convention style of, like, uh, what is it and how you came about it? Well, um, the original concept for the character came from a musical that I wrote back in the 90s. It was called Nothing Like Vaudeville. And I was just writing songs for this kind of concept album where it was about a runaway freak who clashes with these kind of 1920s vaude villains. So Tapping mm-hmm. and Killer was one of the songs. And, you know, through the years I've been working on this musical and different versions of it. Um, and it really sat since like 19, since about 2000. And what happened is uh, when we were doing our Apama series, I had the idea to have him join a community theater for a couple issues and, you know, just kind of get, he gets sick of being a superhero because it's so tragic for him all the time. And, mm you know, the idea to bring these characters from that old musical into the present day. I'm sorry, it's windy here. Is that coming through? Only a tiny bit, so you're you're good. Okay. So the idea to bring these characters from the musical into the comic book seemed like a lot of fun, and then it was kind of just kind of redesigning them for the pages of the comic, you know, and I think – you know, one of the things I'm asked most on the Comic-Con circuit is, why did I decide to make her a black woman? And I'm married to a black woman. We have a daughter. And it was really important that we have this kind of kick-ass black female character in our world. Mm-hmm. And it's funny because 
this is one of those situations where, again, the, the it's it's the spinoff of the previous one, and in a lot of ways, one would think that uh, the the spinoff requires kind of knowledge of Apama, but I would argue that it, it really like it doesn't require knowledge of Apama. Apama is still a good book that people should read if they if they are so inclined. But I do feel like this trade paperback is something you can just kind of pick up and and go. Yeah, and that was intentional too because I I realized that you know. To your point earlier, not a lot of people know about these indie books. So if I start a book that's related, you know, to another one and you have to have read that, I mean, we're, we're cutting our chances in half and they're pretty low to begin with, you know, when you're talking about yeah. indie books succeeding. So, you know, we give you a recap, but it's also treated in a way almost more like an Astro City where you're just introduced to characters that have this history and you don't necessarily have to have read all those other, you know, sometimes mm-hmm. you're just given a new character and the, the history takes place over a two-page recap. So that's what we did. And a lot of people don't even realize that Nikki St. Clair has this history in the Apama book at all. Yeah, that's actually, that's actually, I hadn't thought about that just because I already had the kind of necessary necessary backstory. But that kind of makes perfect sense that you could read this as like a fictional history and never really know unless you know that no way right. that story was actually published. <laughs> yes. No, that, that, uh, it happens to me on the, on the con circuit all the time. People are like, you know, they come up and tell me what they dig about the book or whatever. And then they, they see her on the cover of a Palma and they're like, well, what's this about? <laughs> I go, well, let me tell you. Yeah. Uh, sorry if my phone's making a bunch of noise at me, at you. I, uh, my phone, my battery is on the lower side, so I plugged in the the charger, and apparently the charger is broken, and so it's doing that thing where it's hopping back and forth between charging and not. <laughs> uh, no, I, I don't hear anything on my end, but hopefully it's okay for you. All right, cool. If we need to go over anything a second time, I'm happy to. Uh, no, I, no, I, I everything I was getting from you was fine. I was just apologizing in case you were hearing the boing 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 of the phone trying and failing to charge. Um, <laughs> But uh, no, I, what I did is I stepped outside because my dog tends to start barking. So mm-hmm. I'm, I'm getting traffic noise here, which I don't know. Hopefully you're not getting that. No, not at all. Okay, good. So the uh, y- you talked a little bit about the uh, the kind of the, the development of the character and the high concept of who kind of tap dance killer is. But uh, what can you tell us about this character, like as a person outside of the like almost caricature that she presents as a as a identity sure well um my biggest influence is is his you know and i wear it on my sleeve is is sort of the stanley peter parker kind of stuff where you have these very relatable alter egos set against fantastical um superheroes or or villains or whatever you know I, i always think that that for me it's always been the, the most fun about reading comics is sort of this uh, yin-yang. So mm-hmm. with Nikki, I wanted somebody who felt very relatable, just like our our, our Ilya character, you know. Ilya drives an ice cream truck. I I've, I, I think I don't think there's quite a uh, uh, an alter ego guy like him in the comic book universe. And with Nikki, I wanted this, you know, I theater is, is huge in my life, you know, and I've done a lot of productions and things. And, I wanted somebody who felt like this theater gal, you know, that had 
She just goes from show to show, and she's extremely talented. Everybody loves her. Sweetheart, you know, and then you add to that the duality of this ruthless tap dance killer. And, um, yeah, I think it's a, it's a pretty fun mix. So, you know, Nikki, uh, I feel like I've, I've known a couple Nikki's in my life and it's easy for me to kind of write her. I always feel like it's, it's interesting because so often, uh, people who write about theater folks or people who write about writers, it's like this, this is, it's, it is people who you've met in your life because you're in that same kind of sphere. And as a result, a lot of it tends to fall into kind of comedy and almost parody because it's just easy to kind of crack jokes about you and your friends uh, without feeling like you're going to hurt anybody's feelings. Um, this, this book doesn't so much do that, uh, which I think is, is one of those things that, uh, was that a conscious choice to kind of lean away from the way that, that theater people are always portrayed and everything, or was that just a matter of like that tone wouldn't have gelled with what you're trying to do? Well, yeah, I, I think it comes back to wanting it to feel real to me. You know, if if it feels true, you know, uh, then I feel like I can absolutely sell the outlandish stuff as long as I've built a world that we believe. And so for me, yeah, if, if if we had caricature sort of uh, regular everyday people and then we had these outlandish characters with costumes, there would be nothing to – that as a storyteller, I could feel like I could – there wouldn't be anywhere to stand. You know, there would be no foundation. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so I, I think it's, it's really um, – I guess it is. It's about setting a foundation that's firm, believable, honest, and then you can do whatever you want. You know, that's that's my goal anyway. I feel like you could make that argument about the uh, like the Giffen Dematis Justice League, that part of the reason it worked so well is because we had, by that point, entered an era of essentially or ignoring secret identities and doing all superhero all the time. And so then to have a, a creative team come in and make the superheroes um, kind of grounded and broken – uh, is is probably part of why that works, quote unquote. Yeah, and uh, now I'm sorry. Who did you you quote there, uh, Mattis? Uh, the, like the, the old Giffen and Dematis Justice League, the one from the the late '80s, uh, early '90s, where it was okay. the Wahaha guy. Um, yeah, I had never read that one. Um, I, I I mean, I know of it, but I I couldn't. Yeah, yeah. There <laughs> was any kind of authenticity, like you 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 can. It's mostly just um, one of those me, things where. Oh, sorry. No, well, for me, it's it's you know when you read those old Spider-Mans, you know even the mm-hmm. the, the Romito Lee Spider-Mans, there's just so much character and 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 all the there's no throwaway characters in that cast, you know, and and I just love that he he couldn't help but just fill every <laughs> crater with with word bubbles to give us what's going on in their thoughts and everything and. Um, mm-hmm. I, I, you know, so there was so much, there was a, a very conscious effort to make these characters three-dimensional, no matter who they were. So I, yeah, it's, it just goes to that, you know, kind of repeating myself, but that's where I'm, <laughs> uh, I'm going. Well, let's talk a little bit about the, the kind of the putting together a collected edition and the Kickstarter itself. One of the things that always occurs to me is that indie books are actually easier to sell in a collected edition than they are in single issues uh, for a wide variety of reasons. 
so how important is it to you, like, not only as an artist because you want to see the completed story, but also as a creator to have something like that? Because it, it feels to me like the trade is almost this artifact that it's like this is the easiest way to communicate what I'm doing to people at a convention or whatever. Yeah, it's been interesting because we, we, we were always afraid of single issues with the PAMA, you know, and, and mm-hmm. not having done any kind of printing before, it was kind of this thing where we thought, well, we better just go right to a collected edition. And, and it does work pretty well at the cons. But actually with a character like a PAMA, which takes so much to explain, and mm-hmm. you're asking somebody to plunk down 20 bucks right out of the rip, um, that was mm-hmm. actually, I think, a challenge where with the single issues on a PAMA, a lot more people are willing to try it, and then they, they kind of get hooked and, and want the rest of it. So mm-hmm. the difference with Tap Dance Killer is the words by themselves do mean something. You know, you don't even have to know anything <laughs> about the character. And um, we've been able to – I've been able to sell single issues pretty easily. So I, I think that the trade – um, well, let me let me re- rethink this a little bit, if you don't mind. Um, yeah. Yeah, because th- this has been so weird, because dealing with Diamond has been really great for us. You know, they, they got behind mm-hmm. the book, and having that single issue out every couple months or, you know, um, quarterly, it is sort of, uh, it makes an impression every time, so more people have heard of it. And yeah. um, where if we had just done a trade, we would have had a splash for a month, and that would have been it, you know. So mm-hmm. I think what I'm learning is there is a real value for indies to do single issues, as hard as it is. And it, it's brutally much harder. <laughs> but mm-hmm. I think there's a bigger reward there if if um, if you can get – get them in the comic shops, which is another whole challenge. And I'm, I'm, we're very fortunate yeah. that Diamond that Diamond did get behind us. Did I actually answer uh, your question, though? I don't know if I did. Uh, it's okay. I don't think I asked a real question. I think I mostly just kind of uh, left, <laughs> gave you an open-ended opinion so that you could elaborate on it. <laughs> okay. That sounds um, good. But uh, a more direct question is, like, why Kickstarter? Was it just like that was always the that was always just how it was going to get done, or was it that one of those things that you thought about and you thought like the best way to do this is to have X number of readers already on for the ride, or what? How did that uh, kind of decision making process happen? Yeah, well, we um, doing the comics as we are, even through Diamond, it's just extremely expensive, and every book costs much more to make and print than we make from our sales with Diamond. And mm-hmm. so, you know, we always were intending to, you know, if we didn't have a deal with Diamond, we'd still be doing this. We would just be trying to make all the money on the cons and through our website. So mm-hmm. the good news is that uh, a decent percentage of that print budget is paid for by the Diamond order. So right out of the gate, we, we have quite a bit of sales. Um, mm-hmm. But we can't maintain this you know, going to a trade. So a trade is going to cost about $8,000, you know, for a couple thousand copies. Um, mm-hmm. And that's just not money I have laying around, you know, because I'm always using whatever funds I have to, to either go to shows and pay artists, inkers, color, you know, all that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So the Kickstarter really is important 
for the for the health of the the company and for the the series going forward that we you know can can get that printing fund handled because I won't get paid from Diamond until after it's delivered. So obviously I've got to come up with that money first. So uh, and and the other thing with Kickstarter is it allows us to to sell stuff that we just can't distribute otherwise. Like we have original art, you can be drawn into a story. You know, I've got CGC graded 9.8 versions of the covers. So mm-hmm. there's just a lot of things that people have asked for at the shows too, and, and we don't bring them to all the shows. So it's it's kind of a uh, a nice fun just sort of shop too. Yeah, it's funny because I actually uh, one of one of my one of the things that I tend to do when I'm backing a Kickstarter is I'll always look for some like reward tier where it's just like there's there's no way I would ever buy this in person or could buy this. You know, it's like something like original art or you know whatever, where it's just mm-hmm. like yeah, the, the odds are the odds are if I didn't do this here, the opportunity for me to do it would be next to zero. <laughs> um, so. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I always I always appreciate it when people who are doing the Kickstarter kind of have that thought process of like you know what we could sell stuff here that is not practical to like cart around the country. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and that's 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 exactly it. So um, it's and it started off pretty well. We've, we've got almost some kind of support at every tier. Mm-hmm. And has it been? I mean, obviously, like you said, you've been in comics for a while now and you've you did you originally crowdfund uh the uh um the original film here tomorrow no we didn't no uh here tomorrow we we pretty much gathered the investment from uh you know people we knew family Mm -hmm. and our and our own money and we just went for it that was it was kind of back we shot that back in 2004 and i don't think kickstarter really was yeah. No, it wasn't even a thing because they just had their 10-year anniversary. So, no, it was yeah, it, it was kind of. It's funny because I think uh, I think that uh, outside of some of my very very favorites, I think Hero Tomorrow is uh, one of the only superhero movies that I have. Uh, at, I have at least two copies because I have a DVD on one shelf and a Blu-ray on another. <laughs> oh, right on. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so it's one of those, and. Uh, I, I remember being in college and having the world's largest crush on Jocelyn. <laughs> yeah, she's but, great. I still see her when I do, uh, like sometimes she'll stop by when I do Steel City Con. She's in Pittsburgh these days. Yeah, yeah. Well, that was, she was in Pittsburgh back, because like back when I covered it ages ago, probably 2006 or seven, um, uh-huh. uh, she like friended me on Facebook or followed me on Twitter or something. And uh, it was one of those things where I was like, uh, for for a chunk of time, I remember seeing her pop up in the same like whatever algorithm they use to bundle things. Uh, my 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 ex girlfriend and uh, and all the uh, um, George Romero stuff because it was like the the, the uh, Facebook just knew. Oh yeah, these things mean Pittsburgh. <laughs> <laughs> right, uh, that's funny. But. Uh, uh, Actually, that's a, that's a, a solid thing. Is like, have you have you thought about taking this and trying to make a, a film version out of it? Of Tap Dance Killer? Yeah, of Tap Dance Killer. What we'd love to do is um, an entire series that has the Apama world, the mm-hmm. Tap Dance Killer world, and then 
the the villain in a Palma Regina. Like you'd have these three sort of um, stories going along. But absolutely, mm-hmm. you know, and we've I've been asked about the rights a couple times. There's nothing solid going on, but I, I think the further we go mm-hmm. with it, um, I, I think something would hopefully be inevitable. You know, one of the nice things about a book like this is that um, it, on on the that face value, it looks like it's easy to adapt. And so I feel like it's one of those things where uh, somebody can look at it and be like, "Oh no, I get what he's doing here and how it would work as a as a film," as opposed to say like Box Office Poison or something, where it's like it's such a comic-y thing that a lot of the time I feel like. People look at that and we're like, how would I do this and not lose 100% of its personality? <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah, we had one review where the guy cast everybody. <laughs> it, was just, it was pretty fun. Nice. Yeah, that, I mean, that, those kinds of things, it, it, again, going back to my uh, my uh, younger years when I was I, – I interned at Wizard Magazine. And uh, there's uh, – I was recently uh, – I got a giant pile of, like, 80 wizards that somebody gave me. And I was flipping through them and going, like, I forgot how much fun fan casting was back before the Internet when everybody could chime in on, on Twitter to tell you that you're wrong and a terrible person. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> uh, I got a bunch of those uh, mags. We were looking at some the other day, and, I, yeah, it's amazing that the stories and how candid everybody was. And, oh, yeah. yeah. Uh, well, that's uh, – I do feel like uh, – at the at the independent level, it's easier to kind of frankly discuss your book and your other media aspirations and your publishing issues and all that kind of stuff than it is at at the higher level. So obviously, in addition to corporate, you also have uh, fanatical fans. Um, but I do feel like your books had enough success. Have you had uh, some some really fun kind of fan encounters at some of these conventions in terms of cosplay or tattoos or whatever other kind of craziness? Yeah, um, well, no, there hasn't been any tattoos, but, uh, yeah, when I was in New York Comic Con, there were two tap dance killers, um, and, you know, I mean, one of the things that just completely touches my heart, you know, like, um, you'll get a, um, uh, a mother with her, like, her son and daughter, and they're black, and they, they're just mm-hmm. like, oh, I should cosplay her next time, and he's like, oh, yeah, and I'll do this punchline character, and, you know, so they, they buy the comics, whatever, they go away, and the mother comes back to me and just says, hey, I want to thank you for doing this, that that you've created this character, these characters that they can see themselves in. And mm-hmm. she goes, that means a lot to me. And it just completely just, you know, emotionally uh, fills me to the to the brim, you know. I, I just mm-hmm. feel so good about it. It's funny because uh... – and again, like it, you get the upside of that uh, at this level without necessarily the downside of the fans who get angry that you're like quote unquote taking something from them. Um, <laughs> right. Uh, like I, I, one of the great things about Safe Strangers in Paradise is the fact that you had like these two lesbian leads in a book where uh, that was always just the DNA of the book, and it's not meant to appeal to people who read it 35 years ago because it didn't exist 35 years ago, <laughs> you know. Uh, yeah. I kind of love the uh, I kind of love the way that, that independent books can interact in a positive way with the fans without necessarily having the, all the negative blowback of 
like big two comics, so to speak. Yeah, and I, well, we also benefit uh, a bit from the fact that people are ready for some new characters. You know, I mean, it's, it's I, I love the, the the you know the roll call of the great Marvel DC characters as much as anybody. At the same time, you know, I'm really excited to be doing new characters and, and characters that aren't versions of characters in either of those universes, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah. And that's actually a really good point, is that the, these characters that you've created do tend to feel very much like brand new characters and not just like, oh, this is like Mark Miller's version of Batman. And, and again, that's not to like poop on Mark Miller. It's just like pulling names out of a hat. But sure. But the, like those books are so common in the indie community right now. Like the like, what if I subvert the the superhero uh, you know medium by doing like my take on Superman or my take on whatever? And, and those are so common. I do kind of feel like when I look at a book where it's like, yeah, costumes adventurers, but it's not you know it's not Watchmen. It's not you trying to. Uh, break down existing characters to their core elements. It's it's actually just kind of uh, straightforwardly new costume characters. I appreciate that, and yeah, that is one of the main goals and objectives. I'm I'm very grateful that's coming through. For you personally, what is like what makes up kind of the fundamental DNA of Again, not necessarily superhero, but of like costumed adventurer books. Like, what are the things that really appealed to you that you want to kind of make sure you you uh, approach when you're doing Tap Dance Killer or Apama, uh, where it's like, obviously you don't want to be exactly Superman, but what is it that like mainstream comics have that you you say like this is what we can take away and still feel like us? So, great question. Um, when I was growing up. You know, I was growing up in like the 80s, you know, that's when I was probably at the, the peak mm-hmm. of when I was really into comics. Um, there were, you know, the old Moon Knight series, for instance, um, the one with Doug mentioned, Bill Sienkiewicz. Fucking loved it. I mean, it, it, was, it was my thing. You know, nobody else got Moon Knight. That was, that was all right. I, it, was, I, it was just mine, it, you know, in my little circle of friends, right? Mm-hmm. And that, and even with music, I think about music a ton. You know, I, I love the old Van Halen albums. And, you know, I, I really do think about wanting to create that moment for some reader that this mm-hmm. is their cool thing, you know, that, that is only theirs. So mm-hmm. it can't, by design, be like something else. But it it does, in the back of my mind, I am thinking about the way I felt when I was reading those books. Even though I'm not trying to make Moon Knight, you know, I'm not trying mm-hmm. to do that. But I, I want, what if it, you know, what if it was Moon Knight for for black girls, you know, or something like that, you know? But the, 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 that version, and yeah. um, uh, and man, I, you know, even the way I just phrased that, I don't know if that's going to come off well in print. So <laughs> maybe uh, let me try to rephrase that, okay? Um, yeah. yeah. But you kind of get where I'm going with it, I think. Yeah, no, absolutely. It's it's less about the specific tropes and more about the kind of emotional experiential part of. Yeah, yeah, and I and I am thinking about different audiences. So you know, um, as I said, I have a daughter. You know, my wife is black. You know, and and we have a daughter. Let me 
I have a, my wife is black, we have a daughter. I want that experience for her. That's mm-hmm. probably a better way to describe that. Mm-hmm. It's always, it's, you know, it's always frustrating. And I, I, I'm friendly with Brian Bendis, and so obviously I've had this version of this conversation before, but it's like, it's always tough when you're a, a well-intentioned white dude to try and <laughs> express <laughs> these things without sounding uh, condescending or like an asshole. Um, yes, I think, thank you. And I, and I think you're doing fine, but I also think that, like, it does help uh, in your case and in Brian's to, to be able to be like, look, this is literally a thing that I'm doing for my family. And then the fact that everybody else can, can benefit from it, too, is awesome. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, that, that's right on the mark. So I didn't realize that. Is he he's married to someone of color? Yeah, uh, I can't recall. I know that uh, I know that Miles Morales is born out of the fact that I believe his daughter like i think he he has a child with his wife uh, i don't know if she is latina or if she's african-american but uh i know that that his the oldest daughter is actually from his wife's first marriage from what i understand and so she's half black half latino and so she is like miles like that was that uh. was part of why he wanted to be able to reflect that specific experience and the fact that like every minority in comics isn't just a black guy um yeah, and so, yeah. like, uh, that my, and again, I could be misremembering some small part of it, but I, I'm pretty sure that his oldest daughter is uh, the same ethnic makeup as Miles Morales, and that that's a big part of why he has kind of taken a hard look at himself since he got famous and been like, what can I do to add a bunch more toys, more toys to the toy box that don't look exactly like Tony Stark? You know? Yeah. Oh, that's great to hear. I, you know, it, it's it's exactly the same in that way. Yeah. I, I mean, it, it just makes you examine yourself and, and what you're doing. And you know, it was even when we first came up with her. Um, you know, we were posting images of her, and, and they were blowing up. You know, more than Alpama ever did, which was kind of mm-hmm. funny. But like, she's been liked and shared thousands of times. And um, there were always there were some people who were like, why did you decide to make the villain black? You know, what is that? Mm-hmm. You know, like they 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 had an attitude about it. And I'm like, look, I've already made like five white villains. You know, <laughs> and I sort of like, I don't think they should all have to be. You know, and basically, I, I I've been on panels about diversity and things, and you know, um, mm-hmm. what my my response to that is, well, then are we saying that all the cool villains have to be white? <laughs> I don't know. You know, so. It's, it gets kind of um, silly in well, some ways. That's, it's always tough, too, because I get the like the intent behind and like an observation like that. But at the same time, it's like, look at DC. Like, DC aggressively markets this notion that we have basically Batman, Superman, Wonder Woman, and then a bunch of awesome villains. Like, they, everybody who isn't one of the big three or – like a top tier villain is below that. <laughs> um, so I do think that there's an element of like to a, to a big chunk of the audience, like villains are the best part. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean they're fun and you know I mean especially well I, I yeah I've, I've been such more, so much more a Marvel guy and mm-hmm. I, I, it was always because I felt the characters were more relatable to me growing up. Mm-hmm. You know I just I get it you know but. Um, uh, but on the villain side, there's there's some, yeah, I mean, the characters could tend to be, on the hero side, I think they can tend to be too idealistic and perfect. 
Mm-hmm. And that's that's a bit of a turnoff, so the villains do, do get this other kind of appeal. Thanks again for listening, everybody. Check out Ted's campaign on Kickstarter. It's actually fully funded now because it took me about a week to get this whole thing together. But uh, it's definitely still worth you pre-ordering because the book is very good. So check it out. And uh, in the meantime, be back here by noon on the fifth day for more Emerald City video. And always remember to rewind your cassettes. A C E N.